0: We good to go? Thank you, uh, worship team, that uh, it's glad to be back and uh, definitely missed you guys last week. It's kind of interesting, um, <coughs> whether you know or whether you don't know, there's a, there's really not a lot of collaboration between <laughs> the uh, worship set and the sermon, although there's times that maybe we'll talk about it, whoever's picking out the songs, but... Uh, Last week, we were gone. Um, the football team played in the state semifinals against Napa Vine, who yesterday beat Okanagan to win the state championship, but um, that's not necessarily, that's kind of like your last football update of the year. I I won't promise that because I'm sure I'll have something to say about the Seahawks eventually, but um, but as far as high school football goes, um, our team here in Shwila really, uh, really did some amazing things this year. and. But the, uh, I traveled home. I, I didn't ride the bus home Saturday night with the team. We stayed, and I wanted to visit an uh, uncle of mine who's 92 and lives in Auburn, and we went out for dinner and spent some time together, and then we came home Sunday. And uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm bringing all this together, including the last song, so just bear with me. But uh, if you know anything of my testimony... Uh, It was a truck wreck that that my dad and I were in in 1990 that God really used to change uh, my life and to challenge me, and it it was not just the wreck. It was the ride home with uh, Bob Carlson, uh, spiritual father and as close of a second father as I would have. Um, That truck wreck happened on I-90, and it happened between Ellensburg and Thorpe, a little stretch there alongside the river where I fell asleep driving. And uh, when I woke up, we were in a, a full-size truck, commercial truck, and uh, when I wo- woke up, we were, we, I were straddle a guardrail, and we're just clipping those posts off, just boom, 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 boom. We took out about 100 yards of guardrail before the truck rolled down into the, down into the ditch. And uh, so when I hear the words of that song, You Rescued Me, um, that's where my mind goes. Uh, not only did God use that to really change me but he used that incident and that situation to really encourage me because it was the first situation I ever heard my dad give God glory or credit for anything because as I was kinda pulling him out of the truck and everything was a mangled mess and steam and gas spilling and you know cows in the back that were now crippled and banged up and but I'm kinda like pulling him out of the truck and and I just said, I can't believe it. God just saved us. He just rescued us. And he's like, He sure did. And that was the first statement I can remember my dad saying anything glorifying to God at all. Not that he was a, he just wasn't a believer. He just didn't, you know, believe in God. Um, he wasn't, I wouldn't say that he was necessarily an atheist either, where he denied the existence of God, but he just didn't give God credit for anything. Man, none of this has anything to do with. Mark chapter 4, other than to say, as we dive back into Mark chapter 4, there's an overarching point point that I think that that does connect, and uh, that's where we're going to be. Last, two weeks ago, we looked at Mark chapter 4. Tim, thank you for filling the pulpit this last week. Mark chapter 4, in and of itself, really is, uh, there's four kingdom principles that Jesus is teaching His followers and he's teaching via parables. He's teaching, he's turned his teaching style really to parables. We sp- spent a lot of time talking about what parables are two weeks ago, so I won't go there. But this is kind of the overarching point, And this is where it does kind of tie into my testimony a little bit. I think if you look at Mark chapter 4 in, in, in whole, you will see kind of, a, you'll, you'll kind of agree with this statement that less is more. That Jesus in his teaching style, and and specifically what he shares, he comes across with this point that less is more. With God, less less doesn't mean less like it does in our eyes. With God, less is more. And so he has these four kingdom parables, the parable of the sower that we looked at two weeks ago, and I'll just do a little review to kind of jump into the last three. So you have the, the parable of the sower, verses 1 through 8, the parable of the light, verses twenty-one through twenty five, verses twenty-one through twenty-five, the parable of the growing seed, verses twenty-six through twenty-nine, and the parable parable of the mustard seed, verses thirty through thirty-two. As I've mentioned, two weeks ago we looked at the parable of the sower. Actually, it could really be called the parable of the soils. Because really what Jesus is focusing on is he's he's focusing on four different Types of soils is using soil types as a picture to people's hearts. We read there in Mark 4, 1 through 8, by review, that the word that was planted, the gospel that was planted, and four different soil types, those types are the wayside, the stony ground, among thorns, and then, of course, the last one is the good soil. A few verses later, in verses 13 through 20 of Mark 4, Jesus gives us the explanation of what these four types represent. They represent The wayside represents uh, the, the type of a person or the type of a heart where Satan comes in like a bird to just steal the word away before it really uh, has any effect at all. The second type is the stony ground where we talked about these uh, characteristics of the stony ground. It's shallow soil. It's sun-scorched there's superficial growth, uh, and where people who uh, are in that category of being a, a stony ground type of a person, they stumble when persecution comes, Jesus says. They stumble. They they All it takes is a little persecution, and then they're out. The third type is the seed or the word sown among the thorns, which is representative and described this way. It's where it's Things, the word gets then choked out by the world, wealth, and really whatever else. I threw in that last one because I like things to line up according to, alphabetically. So, but it's true, the, the, and, and, and <clears throat> we'll get into this a little bit more as we go, but the cares of this world, in essence, or the distractions of wealth, or, or anything else that's out there really chokes out the natural growth and the natural progression of that seed. That's sown among the thorns, too much competition, if you will. And then, of course, there's the good soil where there's good growth and there's great production. Let's pick up where we left off. That's just a little intro into where we're going to go, but I thought it's significant from the standpoint of an overarching view that we really look at all four parables to, and really see the bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about. Let's pick it up now. We've made our way through that intro, clear to verse. 21 is where we'll start Mark 4:21 through 34 and I'm just going to read the whole passage then we'll go back and look at these kingdom principles again and again the first one that we'll look at is review from 2 weeks ago but bear with me here we go Mark 4:21 and <clears throat> also he said to them is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed is it not to be set on a lampstand for there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed nor is anything been kept secret but that, should, that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When I was a kid, I'm just going to pause right there and say, when I was a teenager, that verse scared me to death. <laughs> Amen? Can some of you relate? Like, when I read through that, I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Somebody's going to find out something. Somebody's going to know something. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 24, then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And he said, and the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Then he said, to to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it's sown in the ground is smaller than all the other seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Let's go back and look just if you will, and you're going to have to kind of work backwards uh, into the earlier verses of chapter 4. But as I mentioned, there's four kingdom principles. And really there's a word that I've come up with for each principle that's there, for each parable that we see in chapter 4. So the first parable, of course, that we talked about two weeks ago is the sower, verses 1 through 8. And the word there is reception. The word for the, the parable of the sowers or the parable of the soils, whatever your preference is, really comes down to a matter of reception. Reception the gospel planted in the good soil produces an abundance why because that soil was fertile It was ready to receive the word and then produce from the word all of the other soil types have inherent issues all the other three types have inherent issues that make them unproductive, unfruitful. Uh, the one, the one that's sown in stony ground, there's an, an initial burst that it all looks good. The, the word says there in verses one through eight, that, that they received it with joy. So there there's an initial excitement for that type of person that received God's word. but guess what? It didn't last. It didn't produce. So they, all the three other soil types have these inherent problems. That makes them unproductive, either in the beginning or in the end. Satan's theft, a rocky life, and the world's distractions. In the order of the first three, that's kind of the way that it plays out. These inherent problems are Satan's theft, a rocky life, and the world's distractions. They all lead to a lack of reception of God's word and a non-productive life in the kingdom of God. That's the warning that Jesus has for us, his followers. That's the warning that he has. <clears throat> now, with that warning, there's also the rejoicing of the good soil. There's the good soil as well. But how do we know that we're in the good soil category? How can you analyze? How can you, how can you apply this to your life? How can you think about uh, your life, your, your marriage, the people around you that you're sharing the word of God and the temptation will be, let's just put this up front on the table, the temptation will be to say, you know, well, I, I work with Tom, and I'm not, I think he's kind of a stony soil type of a guy, so I'm just not going to waste my time sharing the Word with him. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the sower went out and put seed in all these different types. And so it isn't a matter of us picking and choosing who we're going to share with. Our job as sowers is simply to just share. But how do we categorize, how do we know that we're in that good soil category, or perhaps other people are in that good soil category. How do we know that we're ready to receive God's Word? Uh, Is it possible? Here's another question. Is it possible to go from one soil type to another? Jesus doesn't really get into that, but I think it's a fair question as we're thinking back to two weeks ago's sermon. It's interesting. um, Ezekiel chapter 36 gives us a beautiful picture of how God plows up the hard soil of rocky hearts, and I, I, wanted to pull up just a couple patches, uh, pieces of Ezekiel chapter thirty-six, because there's two things that, that God shows there in Ezekiel thirty-six, that I think is particularly uh, important when we're talking about heart issues. First thing is is that God gives us a heart transplant. Ezekiel thirty-six verse twenty-six says this I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of you out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them Ezekiel says so God really gives his people he gives that good soil type he gives us a, a heart transplant where you're changed where I'm changed And we should all be able to, in some capacity, look back over the the story of our own lives and say say this type of a statement. I might not be where I need to be. I'm still growing. I'm still learning about God. I'm still in that sanctification process in Christ. But I'm not who I used to be. I'm not that guy. I'm not that lady. I'm not struggling with those things. Uh, Why? Because primarily... Christ has given me a heart transplant. He's taken out my stony heart. He's, he's broke up that stony heart that within, that's within me. He's put that stony heart in the rock crusher, tore it out, and gave me a new heart. And also, then he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You have new desires. You have new, uh, a new worldview. We, we experience life totally different. Totally different than we did before we came to faith in Christ. And we should be able to go back and kind of see that progression in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. The second thing that God does there in Ezekiel 36, and there's a lot more to it, I'd encourage you to really just read the whole chapter. But He does this restoration through hard tillage. He does this restoration through hard tillage. Drop down, Ezekiel 36, pick it up in verse 33, where Ezekiel says, Thus saith the Lord God, On the day I cleanse you from all of your iniquities, there's that component, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. And here it is, verse 34 and 35. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. What a beautiful picture of restoration. That's the result, that little phrase, and I'll read the rest of it, we'll come back to it. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate, I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. In Ezekiel 36, there's like 13 times where God says, I will. You want a checklist of what God's up to in in relationship to His people, in relationship to dealing with sin, in relationship with dealing with going from hard-hearted people to soft-hearted followers of God? Look at Ezekiel 36, and just underline in your Bible, there's 13 times, I believe, I counted up, where God says, I will, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And the picture that he lays out after a bunch of hard tillage in the hearts of his people is a picture of perfection. It's a picture of what used to be. It's a picture of the original, it's a, it's a description of the original perfection, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. God restores through hard tillage. So how receptive are we to what God is doing is the question that I wrote down in my notes. How receptive are we? And, 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 And here's why I write the question down. Oftentimes we have the expectation that other people should be receptive. Really the encouragement that other people need to be receptive is our receptive our being receptive to what God is doing. The change that God is bringing in our lives is what's inspiring and and, and makes people, you know, uh, inquisitive of what's going on. How receptive are we to what God is doing? And it's only God that can take a person from one soil type to another. But the outcome, I'm going to say, is amazing. The outcome is amazing. All right, enough of... That's kind of all kind of connected to two weeks ago. Uh, this week starting in verse 21 the next kingdom principle is the principle of light verses 21 through 25 and the word to go with light is responsibility responsibility the light of the gospel exposes every hidden thing and the more that we hear it and embrace it then the more that's going to be given jesus had plenty to say about light after freeing a woman in John chapter eight, after freeing a woman caught in adultery, and Jesus turns back to her accusers, those that those that had drug her out of the house to expose her sin. Now Jesus, in the process, of, they wanted him to judge her. You know, and 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 we all remember the fa- the famous line: "He who is without sin, cast the first stone." Meaning, in that culture, in that first century uh, Jewish culture, if if you couldn't be a witness for the prosecution, if you were engaged in the same activity. So all these guys dropped their rocks because they couldn't say anything. They couldn't participate because they were engaged in the same activity. So after freeing the woman caught in adultery, Jesus turns back to her accusers, those that had exposed her sin. Then Jesus exposes their sin, and He says this. And it almost seems out of place because a lot of times when we read John 8 we're focused on you know uh, the the whole storyline of this lady but it's intriguing that in the context Jesus says in verse 12 that Jesus spoke to them saying I'm the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life I'm the light of the world Jesus has a lot to say about light I'm the light of the world He took his responsibility of being the light of the world clear to death. That's how serious he was about handling his business. Jesus, the light of the world, didn't come to be hidden away. Didn't come to just deal with a couple people. Didn't come to be just hide in the shadows. No, he came to shine brightly. Jesus also says that about his followers in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. So first he says, I'm the light of the world. Then he says, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world, he says. a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew tells us. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. It says, It is the duty of the church in every generation, the duty of every pastor, the duty of every Christian, to take that lamp and remove the basket, to put the light in a prominent place where people can behold the truth of God and His Son. That's how we're the light of the world. We, we have to take, and, and I believe we are taking, so I just want to throw out more encouragement, to just keep pressing forward in this measure, that we have to take the light of the gospel, it has to be in a prominent place, he says. It has, to be, it has to be out there, not hidden away, not tucked away, not under a bed, that our Christianity is just a private matter. That's what our society, that's what our culture would promote, that your faith is your private thing to be exercised here and now, in this moment, on this day, or in your home, but not in the culture. That's the common push. And I say no, I think the Bible says no. The Bible says that our light has to shine brightly. And it will shine brightly. So keep pressing forward with it. And it's the light of Jesus that then drives out the darkness. The light of Christ drives out the darkness. That's what, as a teenager, made me a bit fearful of Mark's explanation of it. And here's why. Ever since the original sin in the garden, mankind has been drawn to. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned and and fell out of relationship with their creator. Mankind has been attracted to the darkness. They've been attracted to hiding under the bed. They've been attracted to, if you will, hiding behind the fig leaves of life. We've been drawn as a people to. To live in shame and regret. And Jesus is the one that comes with the cure. And he's the only one that's come with the cure. So he says, let your light shine bright. Let your light stand out in a crooked and perverse generation. Don't be ashamed of that. Not in any way. Let it shine. Let it shine. The third kingdom principle that we see here in Mark chapter 4 is the principle of the growing seed. The principle of the growing seed, verses 26 through 29, and the word that I have for you on that is is, uh, to rely. Rely. Growth from the gospel seeds is God's job. Growth from the gospel seeds is is God's job. Now, there's an interesting thing, and I really wrestled with this point throughout the week, and actually, of all of them, I probably have the least amount of notes, but I'll tell you why I wrestle with it. Because there's an interesting connection in what God does and what we do, and the question is the question that I always find myself uh, uh, asking of myself: Am I doing what only God can do? Am I do? Am I trying to play the Holy Spirit in in somebody's life, or am I? Am what's my responsibility here? What's my responsibility for myself? And oftentimes, I think a lot of us are in this category. If we'll be honest, we get tripped up because. We, we get in a mode where it's our efforts. Well, we got to we got to try harder. Well, we got to make sure we got to make sure we do it. You know, in your daily devotions, and and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and, and and it becomes all really mechanical. Our faith is not meant to be mechanical. And I fall into that trap probably as much or many as anybody does. We're doing. I mentioned this several times. I'll continue with it. We're doing this uh, chronological read as a family. And of course, we're winding down into the latter parts of the epistles, and and uh, but through the course of this year, I find myself so many times like, I gotta get caught up. I gotta, you know, I gotta stay on track with everybody else, and and uh, and so when I'm, in, I know that when I'm in that mode, it's it's not about what God what I what God wants to say to me through it. It's about me powering through in my own strength. And guess what? I don't get anything from that day. It's just, it's just information going into the head, but, and, and I'm glad that it's there. Don't get me wrong. But it's more about my efforts than God saying, Son, I want to say something to you today through this passage. And so it's a funny mix. The bottom line is, is that growing seeds according to what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, the, the growth part is God's part. He lays out this beautiful story how the, the farmer goes out and he sows the seed. And I said two weeks ago, they did it a lot different than we do. They would go out and just throw the seed, then till it up. And the seeds kind of fall down the holes, they pack it back down, then the seeds grow. But he says the farmer goes out and sows the seed. And while he's sleeping, it, it germinates, sprouts, and comes up through. And he just kind of walks out amazed. And it is kind of amazing. Like my favorite, one of my favorite things to do in, you know, May and early June is when you're up real early when the sun's coming up and you got these fresh little plants that are about this tall, you know, and you get a little steam coming off the ground. It's just a beautiful picture. It's one of my favorite times to go out, just mill around and uh, wander around and drink coffee in the process. But um, I couldn't make those seeds grow. That was God's job the beauty is is to just just to uh, enjoy what only God can do ultimately it's God who gives the increase we can read that if you footnote 1st Corinthians chapter 3 that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians church and he says some water some plant uh, but it's God who gives the increase it's God who makes the gospel seeds grow and we need to rely on God to do what he can, only He can do. The question for that kingdom principle, are we wearing ourselves <clears throat> thin trying to manufacture some sort of growth? I think it's good. It's an interesting mix. Sometimes it's hard to tell where one stops and the other one begui- begins. Because we should be engaged and have an expectation that as a Christ follower, that we are growing in our faith. And it's, it's, it's really hard sometimes to figure out where the balance is between you, our effort, my effort, and God's part, or your effort and God's part. I would say this about that don't stress too much about it. Allow God to do what only He can do and keep growing. The last one, the mustard seed. The parable and the principle of the mustard seed. Found in verses 30 and through 32. And the word there is to rethink. Rethink. Small gospel seeds can have the greatest growth and the greatest impact. And I believe in our society, we think, we generally think the bigger the better. And bigger is not always better. It's an interesting fact that uh, a mustard seed, it, it, <clears throat> I don't grow. Uh, you, you'll see in, the, in our area, and especially if you drive up into Canada or down in the basin, uh, fields planted that are just solid yellow, uh, they j- they're just a sea of yellow. And what that is is it's canola, uh, that's where they get canola oil from. Canola is a variety of the mustard plant. Uh, mustard seeds are, like Jesus said, one of the smallest seeds. They're only about a, a millimeter or two. I mean, they are tiny, tiny seeds, only about one to two millimeters in diameter, yet they grow to between 3 and 12 foot in height. Now, there's actually three different types, or there's multiple types of mustard. There's actually a mustard plant, a mustard bush, and a mustard tree. So, if, if you really dig in and do a lot more research on it, you could, you'll see all of that, and they all have different purposes, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, they believe that what Jesus is talking about here is the common mustard plant. But he's illustrating that This is what the kingdom is like, that a little is a lot, that less is more. That's how the kingdom operates. That's how God operates in his kingdom. That Sometimes it's just less is more. In fact, I would say that with God, anything, everything is more with him. Let's put it that way. I asked myself this question. I wrote it in my notes, and that is is this. What's the perfect growth rate for the church, or what's the biblical strategy for evangelism? what would and you don't have to answer I'd encourage you to probably write down your answer on your notes. Um, there's a lot to have been said. there's been a lot of money and energy and time spent in the church on growth rate of the church uh, and and different churches have different strategies uh And we see all through the pages of the New Testament, you know, we see these monumental things where, you know, 3,000 were added to their number, or 5,000, you know, became believers in that moment, or those sorts of things. Those are not necessarily to be whipped into a formula for today, I don't believe. I think the right strategy, the right growth rate, is kind of like this mustard seed where less is more. And I would say the perfect growth rate for the church comes to two words, one more. I think that that should be our strategy, if you will. That's kind of my thought, my idea of it, that the strategy for growing the kingdom of God is just simply comes down to one more. Share the gospel with somebody. They come to faith in Christ, awesome. Guess what? You have another task, one more. We just grow one more, one more, one more encourage for people one at a time just one more i think that's the right growth rate when it comes to it there's five uh, there's five keys that i want to address through chapter 4 starting kind of back at the beginning but they're kind of scattered throughout in a way and we touched on this two weeks ago the first key to kind of understanding these principles Uh, Because they were hard to understand, they were hard for the disciples to understand, and I think sometimes they're hard for us to understand for sure. But the first and foremost one, the one I think that it's the most important that shows up first in the process of chapter 4 is the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 9 and verse 23 and in verse 33. Uh, And I think really without this key to understanding the kingdom, uh, none of the rest of them really matter. And that is, is to have ears to hear. To have ears to hear. Jesus said that, hey, he who hears, you know, has ears to hear, let him hear. And the Bible is full of both encouragements to listen up and warnings about ignoring God's voice. A good example of that is in the 12th chapter of Ezekiel, where e- Ezekiel is an example of Judah's falling in, uh, failing to hear and obey God, and then landing itself in the slavery of Babylon. But right out of, the gate, out of the gate in Ezekiel chapter 12, Ezekiel gets this word. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, which has ears to hear but does not hear, for there are a rebellious house. The crucial piece of having ears to hear comes down to asking ourselves this question. Will I surrender and trust what God has said? That's really what it all kind of boils. If you, if you want to put it in the funnel, whatever component, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever God is trying to show you, whatever He's challenging you with where you are in your walk, it really all boils down to do we have ears to hear? And it all kind of comes down to this question. Will I surrender and will I trust in what God has said or won't I? Uh, <clears throat> the Lord wants us to have ears to hear the number one key to understanding these parables the second one is is uh given to know the mystery of the kingdom verse 11 given to know jesus says this that it's been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of god there in verse 11 and Historically, that was a really a challenge because the first century Israel really kind of had tunnel vision in regards to how they saw the kingdom being set up, how they saw the Messiah coming. They looked at it purely and simply as a, as a political move that God was going to do on their behalf, freeing them from Rome and the oppression of the, the Roman government and all of that. And Jesus' preaching and his teaching on the kingdom was on a completely different level than what their expectations were. That's why there was so much tension. That's why there was such a rub. He was on a, a completely different plane and a completely different level that the religious leaders, they couldn't really understand where Jesus was coming from, what he was up to. His crowds would get really big. He would say something really hard to understand. His crowds would drop off. They, they, they had a hard time keeping up with the zigs and zags of, Jesus' ministry for three years what's interesting is is that those that did those that had ears to hear those like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and there's others that are mentioned in the book of Acts and in the epistles those that had ears to hear they they figured it out they got on board and the Lord delights in sharing his plan with his people, oftentimes we get caught in a trap that God's will is just so mysterious that I just I just can't figure it out. I just don't understand. God delights. I think this is one of the greatest encouraging components of the whole Word of God is that actually God delights in letting his people know uh, what's what's going on. We don't have perfect knowledge. We don't have perfect insight for sure. We don't see all things for sure, but. <clears throat> God delights in letting His people know what these mysteries are. The fact that the, all of the rest of the world beyond Israel would be invited in to be a part of God's family. is the primary mystery that the Bible talks about. But God delights in sharing that plan with His people. That's the second key to understanding these kingdom principles. The third is, to, that, is that hearing and obedience is equivalent to more verse 24 i'll just read it for you take heed what you hear jesus says with the same measure you use it it will be measured to you and to you who hear more will be given for whoever has to him more will be given but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him man this really flies in the face of our culture where everybody gets a trophy that's kind of our culture like everybody just gets the same thing the same amount you know, make sure it's well-proportioned, make sure it's really easy and even for everybody. Uh, that's not a kingdom principle. Uh, I like actually, uh, I'll, I'll refer to him, I won't quote him because I might get it wrong, but uh, in a sermon years ago I heard uh, Andy Stanley say, the right approach and the right attitude to have is, is that we should do for one what we wish we could do for everybody. That we should be a blessing to one person in, in the manner and in the way and the style that we wish we could do it for everybody, but we often get hamstrung we don't do anything for anybody because we can't do everything for everybody. That's kind of my synopsis of it. Hearing plus obedience equals more. This is the same mindset, really, as the parable of the talents that you would read about in Matthew chapter 25. But When we hear, we have an opportunity to respond to that message. And those that hear respond We'll get more. The question is, the question that I'm wondering about, maybe the question that you're wondering about, is more of what? What's, what's Jesus talking about? More? You'll get more. What are you talking about? More of what? More of what? Here's what you'll get more of. You'll get more desire. You'll get more desire to hear what God is saying. And with that desire, you have more understanding of what you hear and more wisdom to apply the understanding to everyday situations. God desires to bless his people and to grow them into mature Christ followers. He does that by adding to what you know and understand and believe and operate with. He adds more to that and more to that and more to that. More desire, more understanding, and more wisdom. The last kingdom principle that we see in verse 33 is that not only does Jesus give more but he gives more as we're able. Actually, I got two more. He gives more as we're able. The Lord is able. He's able to make us able to understand, able to apply what we learn, able to teach others, Romans 15 says, able to withstand spiritual attacks, Ephesians 6 says, able to comfort others according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, able to resist temptation, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the list is kind of endless. Most of the time when you see the word able show up, it's about what God is able to do. That's the primary. That's the primary for sure. But secondary to that, God says, hey, uh, I'm not going to just save you and then leave you abandoned to just flounder around like fish in the bottom of the boat. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you wisdom and understanding. I'm going to give you discernment. I'm going to make you able to do these things by my power jesus gives more as we're able jesus reminds us that spiritual growth has a sense of momentum it follows momentum and that's true positively or negatively that when we have godly habits of receiving the word of god and living it then more is built onto that when we lose those godly habits they're extremely difficult to get back we all know this is true and we're coming up here in about what 25 days on a season where historically people have charted out all the things that they, that they promised to do for the whole year, right? Uh, I've never been, actually, last year I got hogtied into doing some, uh, we, and, and the kids were really careful not to call them uh, resolutions. I can't remember what they called them. Oh, they were, they were just goals. If you didn't hear that on this side. They, were, they weren't resolutions. They were just goals. And, uh, and so we'll probably have a little family review on how well that went. I would say that my grade is probably going to be fairly parallel to my grades in high school. But um, <coughs> there's a dynamic about where the statement that I had about godly habits Uh, that ties back to my earlier points is that godly habits uh, they take maintenance Uh, they take investment they take time they take energy They, they have to be they do have to be categorized as a goal or as something that's important in our lives and the truth is and we shared with our kids raising our kids is that that good habits take maintenance but bad habits come for free you don't have to work hard at having bad habits not at all I mean, you name it. You guys know your own story. Your own bad habits were super simple to just stay up with. They didn't take any effort, energy at all. Whatever it was, it was free and easy. You just went and did it. But good habits, should we say godly habits, the receiving of God's Word, living it out, those take effort and energy. In that process, though, we have to stay focused on the fact that it's what God is doing in us. The last kingdom principle key here is, is that Jesus reveals things when we get alone with Him. That, you see that in verse 34, uh, the very end of what I read. <coughs> Excuse me, Verse 34 says, But without parables He did not speak to them, and when they were alone, He explained all things to His disciples. When they were alone, He explained all things to His disciples. Oftentimes, Jesus would get away to pray. To spend time with his father. Uh, I would say this: that Jesus made time. Jesus created margin in a, in a ministry that was. I can't. Th- there's not another person that's walked this planet that's had a busier time in ministry for three years than Jesus. Nobody. Yet in that busyness, in that t- tough and tight schedule, with all the pushback and persecution and and all the wrangling that went on. Jesus, of all people, made plenty of time. He created margin in his schedule to get alone and spend time with the Father. And that's the example that he then brings forward in how he leads his disciples. He got alone with them. He talked with them. He taught them things. question is, do we have the margin in life that allows us to hear God's voice? Are we getting that alone time? I want to tell you without... Telling other people's stories that there's some great things happening in the body of Christ. There's some awesome and dynamic things that are happening. Lives being changed, life patterns being challenged, uh, repentance and forgiveness being sought and, and extended. There's some great, great things that are happening in the body of Christ. And a largely, if you will, largely these things that I'm talking about, they're built on the fact that people got away in a, in a sense they were they were convicted by what God said and they responded to it, and a big part of that is getting away and just spending some quality time with the Father and hearing from God. A lot of times we go to God in prayer with our needs, our desires, our wish list. That's not bad. But it can't be the only thing. Sometimes just going and just listening. God, what are you saying today? What, what are you saying today? Who, who, can, I, who can I pray through, for throughout this day? And just listening to what God says. Letting Him reassure us. Letting Him build us up. Give, letting God give us some insights that then are consistent in, with His Word of, of how to interact in different situations. We have to have some margin in life that allows for that. The common denominator in all of this, it's not the big program. The common denominator is, is that less is more. In these parables, whether it's the, the seeds that are sown in the first eight verses or, or the parable of the growing seed, or if you notice, and I didn't bring this up in my notes, the parable of the light, it's not the parable of the lights, plural, it's the parable of the light, singular or the parable of the mustard seed, what God is saying is that one of his kingdom uh, uh, <clears throat> ways is to work with less and create something crazy, something that, that just blow your mind, because in God's eyes, less is more. If the worship team will come on up, we will. Oh, actually, David, with communion. David, come on up. We were going to uh, turn our attention a time of communion. The worship team will come on up and be ready to close after that.